0: An easy thing to put together. Everybody likes, you know, lists. And so, and E.T. would frequently come up as the worst game of all time. And in 95, I think, that's when New Media Magazine actually said this was game was single-handedly responsible for destroying the video game industry.
1: You're listening to Fail Hard, a by-design podcast that explores the relationship between fear, failure, and creativity. Sponsored by Adobe. I'm your host, Will Hall. As a child of the 80s, I can assure you that there was no more desirable product or toy on Earth than an Atari 2600. I wanted one of these things so badly. I used to beg my mom to get one for me. And uh, by the way, for those of you unfamiliar with those early consoles, the way you hook them up, is you actually had to take a screwdriver, go to the back of the TV, take off the panel, disconnect the antennas, and hot wire the system in through the back. I mean, it was kind of absurd. You felt like some sort of amateur hacker or like you were, I don't know, auditioning for MacGyver or something. Completely ridiculous, if you think about it in a modern context, what you had to do to get these systems up and running. And, I mean, look, my dad, he wouldn't even let me touch the remote, so there's no way on earth he was going to let me take off the back panel, so I never got one. So because of that, I ended up having to go down the street, play with the older kids, and just kind of get in whenever they would let me play. Regardless, though, when you think about those early games like Pac-Man, Asteroids, Space Invaders, and the like, they really provided a cultural backdrop that informed all of our imaginations. You know, they unlocked in some ways what the future could be, that technology was something that you could interact with and maybe even program and create. It was really something remarkable. And from a business perspective, Atari took off. They became a household name and had a meteoric rise. And perhaps the only thing more spectacular than their ascension was their catastrophic failure. Overnight, they went from about 10,000 employees down to 2,000 and then essentially out of business. And that failure is most often attributed to one game and one man. I'm
0: Howard Scott Warshaw. I'm the Silicon Valley therapist.
1: Howard wrote an amazing book called Once Upon Atari How I Made History by Killing an Industry. And it's a really strong read. It provides a firsthand account of what it was like to work at Atari during that golden age. And it's funny because during that time, Howard really started to get some clout. He had some early wins uh, with games like Yar's Revenge and You know, within that game, there was so many firsts, the first backstory, the first use of music, not just from a programmer's perspective, but uh, through sort of an emotional lens, new scoring structures, new memory structures. In fact, a lot of the things that are sort of commonplace in games today can be traced back to some of Howard's early work. And as the game industry began to mature, they started to evolve to not just create their own properties, but to complement things like movies.
0: So the next project that came up was uh, they got an idea that what we should do is we should get movies. We should license movies and do games for the movies. So the first one that came up was Raiders of the Lost Ark with Steven Spielberg. And so they needed someone to do Raiders of the Lost Ark. And so I was available, and they liked Yars, and so they said, okay, but if you're going to do Raiders, you have to go talk with Steven Spielberg first because he has to approve the program. So, okay, I get to go talk with Steven Spielberg. I do not have a problem with that. And so I get to talk to Steven Spielberg. And uh, and we talk, I showed him Yars' revenge, and he liked that game. And we talked, and we... You know, we we talked pretty well. We we had a nice vibe going, I thought, you know, was felt kind of fun. He's a very interesting guy. He has like what I would call the the vision of a child, you know, which is I think his just his his creative vision is like unimpaired. He's not funneled by the world of adults, you know, and I think he just sees things in a very open and innocent way in in a lot of ways. And it was really a pleasure to talk with him. And uh, But I was chosen to do Raiders of the Lost Ark, and so I did that, and and Spielberg really liked what I did with that. Find out in Atari's Raiders of the Lost Ark adventure game. It's diabolically difficult. It's
1: mysterious. It's never the same twice. Spielberg was far from the only person who liked that game. Raiders ended up selling over a million copies, just like Yars did as well. And with this backdrop, with this clout, with this history of success, they set their eyes on the biggest prize Christmas of 1982. Only from Atari. Made especially for systems from Atari. The video game that lets you help E.T. get home. Just in time for Christmas. Happy holidays from Atari.
0: What I heard was that he requested that I do E.T. He said, you know, I want Howard to do that. And, uh, but of course, you know, the whole story is, you know, Raiders took 10 months to do. Yar's Revenge took seven months to do. And when it came time to do E.T., there was only five weeks available. So, it was a ridiculously short amount of time. And, uh, they hit me up for it. And, you know, the the CEO of the company actually called me up directly in my office. He said, hey, it was July 27th. He says, Howard, you know, can you have ET for us by September 1st? I said, absolutely, I can. Absolutely, I can. I was so sure because I don't know what exactly it was I was full of, but whatever it was, I was overflowing with it at that point after having done Yars and Raiders. And uh, I believed I could do it and because I knew the secret. I knew the magic secret, okay? And the magic secret is that if you have to do something, if you have to do something on an incredibly short schedule, a lot of people think what you do is you just crunch it. You know, you just you just push it. You just push harder and harder and harder. It's that classic thing of, like, trying to bang on the problem. And that's not it because doing a, trying to do a six-month game in five weeks, you know, That's not a programming challenge. That's an impossibility. That's not going to happen. You might knock a month off that schedule, a month and a half. You're not going to do it in 20% of the time. So what you need is you need to stop looking at it as a programming challenge, right? And you need to take it for what it is, which is a design challenge, right? So it was all about design. It was, you know, usually the way you approach making a video game is you set off on a voyage of discovery right? And we experiment, we play with things, we pick up stuff, and over time, we here's what works, here's what doesn't work, and we refine it, we tune it, we go like that. Well, that's a great process. And, and you know, how long is that process going to take? I don't know. It's going to take at least five or six months, you know, maybe as much as eight or nine months or more, depending on how the scope of the game. But at the end, we know we're going to have a good game because if we don't, we're not going to release it anyway. Okay. So it's basically, we're going to, the goal is to make a good game and we'll see how long it takes, So that's one design approach, right? But what I realized was what I have is this ridiculous deadline. So instead of trying to make a good game and seeing how long it takes, I know how long this game is going to take. This game is going to take five weeks. So what I do now is I say, okay, what I'm going to do is instead of making a good game and seeing how long it takes, I'm going to design a game I can program in five weeks and see how good I can make that. So your priorities shift. But the key is, and I knew enough of the machine at that point. I knew what did and didn't work. I knew what my capabilities were as a programmer. So I just put that together. And I just said, here's something I think I can do in five weeks. You know, and in true Atari tradition for me, I went there and presented that design. I also got a whole, a grand total of 36 hours to do the design, right? Because this was a Tuesday afternoon, Ray Kazar, the CEO of Atari, says, okay, you'll do the game. Well, Thursday morning, 8 a.m., there'll be a Learjet waiting for you at San Jose Airport to bring me down to Spielberg to present the design. So I only had 36 hours to do the design anyway, which is fine because you only have five weeks to do the game. You can't spend too much time designing, unfortunately. And that's what I did. I, I designed something that I felt I could program and 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 pull off in the five weeks and it's and it was a small enough that i felt if 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 the you need a microscopic gameplay that expands in other words that you can play over and over and so that's where the idea of multiple pits came from and it's a treasure hunt game you know and i and again in in the book i cover my whole design process in my head all the thinking the steps that i went through uh how you got to it but Basically, that's what I came up And I laid the whole thing out for Spielberg. And he looks it over and he's like, couldn't you do something more like Pac-Man? <laughs> and I'm like, what? What? Oh, God. And, you know, and the answer is, I can't do something more like Pac-Man because that's going to take too long. Because the kind of tuning and the work you need to do to make a game like Pac-Man saleable is not going to happen in that time frame. So instead, when I said to him, you know, Stephen this is E.T. is a special movie it's an extraordinary movie we need an extraordinary game we need something breakthrough something new to go with it and uh and he accepted that and that was good because I didn't want to have to resort to the screaming and begging and crying you well, know? <laughs> like, this is all I can do in five weeks <laughs> so of course we didn't have to quite get to that point but I was willing to go there if necessary
1: The good news is E.T. shipped on time for Christmas and ended up selling over a million copies, just like Raiders and Yard's Revenge did before it, and was in the beginning seen as sort of a miraculous success. Oh,
0: no, no. So I finished the game August 31st, and it feels like an enormous success. I mean, it feels like an enormous—because it is a complete full game, made it all the way through Quality Assurance— uh, you know, it had a title screen and all kinds of stuff going on, and it even did do some new things. You know, I wanted every one of my games to be groundbreaking, and this was a game that takes place on a real three-dimensional world. It's played on a cube that is true. You know, when you navigate the cube, you you are where you are, and, you, and it's consistent. Uh, it also had context-dependent power-ups, right, which I think was a new concept. The idea that what power you have depends on where you are and when you activate it. And so, cause we only had one button right on the controller. So, uh, so there, I did do some breakthrough things with it that I wanted to. Um, and so it felt like a true success. I had met my goal. I met the deadline. It wasn't the greatest game in the world, but it wasn't the worst either. Uh, at least not yet. <laughs> and so, so that was all good, but it wasn't, and, and, and it's many months later, right? So this is like August and September uh by the time we get to december now it's selling and you know i have both raiders of the lost ark and et in like the top 10 billboard's top 10 selling games right so i've got two games way high up on the list and everything looks really good uh there's no immediate feedback it goes out but the word of mouth on it is very bad it's very tough they they made many many millions of them and they started coming back. And so in the first quarter of the next year, we started to hear more of the feedback. Oh, it's coming back. There's a lot of returns. And, and, and so I started hearing things from people like, we don't blame you, Howard. Don't worry. You know, you really came through for us. That was OK. I'm like, what are you talking
1: about? People didn't give me context. The fallout proved to be devastating. Perhaps you've heard the story about how Atari and their executives famously bought back tens of thousands of these unsold and returned cartridges, and they actually went out to New Mexico in the desert in a landfill and buried them along with other unsold items to sort of hide their past. In a sense, I see this as being almost psychological in nature. It was buried, put to bed, and ultimately the death of that industry. In fact, you can buy these cartridges sometimes on eBay for a few hundred dollars. You know, look, let's be clear. The game industry fell for a number of reasons that were larger than anything that one man or one game could do. Did E.T. really destroy,
0: did I single-handedly destroy a multi-billion dollar industry? I would love to think I had that kind of power, but that's not really the case. There's a lot, as is... As is frequently the case, there are many uh, varied and complex uh, explanations as to just really what contributed to it. But this conflict between marketing and engineering was at the core of a lot of it.
1: You know, anytime you create something new, you're going to have competing forces bouncing off of each other. You know, I see ET's failure as a symptom of a much larger problem, this balance between or rather imbalance between competing points of interest. Marketing and needing to have the cash grab of Christmas, that is a real business variable, I I get it. But it was so disconnected from the realities of how their underlying creative processes worked and the ways that the sausage was made, so to speak. It ended up sabotaging the game, the company, and yeah, the industry. And this so resonates with me. You know, in my day job, I serve as the chief creative officer of an innovation company called Rain. We're one of the world's leaders in voice and conversational AI. And we recently received a Series A funding led by Stanley Ventures. And we're making a product that I really believe in. I think it has the potential to change parts of the world. I really believe that. But it comes back to this challenge of tension, right? There's a way of failing that's good, that promotes uh, iteration, that promotes exploration, that is open to possibilities. And the result of that kind of failure, if you will, creates something that was better than where you began. But E.T. and this story, I think, is such a good example and in some ways a cautionary tale of what happens when the balance gets wrong. And produces a failure that doesn't fail forward that doesn't make something better and that ultimately leads to the death of an idea and an industry so howard i kind of only have one question for you you know there you are you were in your dream job you've worked so hard to even get that job and you'd seem to have found your passion there you worked, you made amazing games. You were really the leader and one of the leaders of that industry. And then seemingly overnight, there it is. Your company is gone. Your industry is gone. And you're kind of left holding the ashes, so to speak. Where did you go from there? What was your mindset? You know, how did you move forward? Nothing that unstable right,
0: can last very long. right? When, when you get the kind of isotopes that generate nuclear energy... You know, it's because they're unstable that they create so much action, but it's really hard to maintain it, right? And something, you know, anything that unstable cannot remain standing, right? So so Atari inevitably fell. But I was in a tremendous amount of denial because I saw it kind of crumbling here and there, and I did not want to admit it because I couldn't let go of something this great this soon. And then uh, I had to. Uh, There came a day where I actually had to leave Atari. And it was depressing. I mean, it was seriously chronically clinically depressing. The idea that I was cast out of Atari because Atari had died. I mean, the Atari that I loved, the Atari I was a part of, when I left, it wasn't it wasn't like, oh my God, Atari's still there, and they kicked me out. Uh, I opted to take a layoff package rather than stay and work on operating systems for the next computer, which I could have done, I had that background, but it wasn't the work that I wanted to do. And they weren't going to be doing creative work on the system. So I I left, but I left knowing there's no place to go. I didn't, I couldn't think of any other place to go. And so now it's like, it's like, is it better to have loved and lost? You know, it was that bittersweet thing of like, I had this amazing ride, but now there's no way I can continue it. And, but I'm an optimist. You know, fundamentally, I'm an optimistic person. So I just thought since I don't believe lightning can only strike once. And since this, had, since I had found this magic uh, combination of creative, creativity and technology, because I need both. I'm very right brain, left brain balanced. It's a little weird. But most people lean one way or the other. And I need both. So if I start getting too creative, I need something more grounding and more technically going. But if I do too much technology, I get bored and I need something more stimulating. I need both. And I realized, okay, you can. You can have a fabulous job where you can entertain millions of people and do something truly creative and inspiring. And that was amazing. And so, and then I lost it. So there was a desperation of that, but there was also this optimism that I'm going to find it again somehow, and it took me nearly 30 years, almost three decades. I I tried all kinds of things, and some things were fun. I mean, I made documentary films. I've written many books. uh, I've worked in industrial robotics. That was very interesting. There's a lot of things that were fun for a while, but uh, becoming a therapist, which is something I kind of always wanted to do, becoming a psychotherapist, Uh, there is a great mixture of creativity and technique. Uh, It really is. You have to know the basic techniques, and I try to expand my knowledge with that as much as I can. But there's also just a pure creative energy that goes on when you're actually working with someone and trying to, you know, literally improve their lives, right? I mean, to help them do better in their life it's even more gratifying than what the entertainment kick I used to get from making video games. And so in some ways, the industry has come full circle in the sense that it used to be just like one screen action games. And then it grew and grew into these huge elaborate action adventures and these huge teams. Now, when I was there, it was one person making a game and that was beautiful. It was pure. Now it's huge collaborative efforts. No one person could make a console game anymore. But handheld devices sort of created this branch off so that even though there's this huge road went down, there's still this opportunity now again. So now people can make apps. Now an individual or a very small team actually can make a game again. So the industry has come full circle to the basic, simple action, you know, screen, you know, just waste five minutes at a time kind of game that people just love to do. And in a sense, I've come full circle also. The way I look at it was I used to just entertain nerds by making games for them. But now as a therapist, as the Silicon Valley therapist, I'm actually making their lives better. And uh, it's very meaningful to me. So my personal journey was like it was a big high and then a huge dip. And then I just sort of wandered through the desert for a number of years trying a bunch of things until I hit another major depression when I thought my life just isn't working the way it was going. And that's when I made the switch into uh, psychotherapy. And I've never looked back. It has been just, it's the only thing I've ever done that exceeds Atari.
1: The more we spoke, the more Howard talked about this idea of synergy. The thought there is that when we look at our past, whether they be good or bad, we bring those things forward. We don't leave them buried like a cartridge in a landfill, but instead we bring them and we create synergies between our past and our present. We create an integration of all these things. And when we do that, it makes us richer people. That experience oozes out of every interaction we have. And in the case of Howard, this integration has made him a far more effective therapist than he ever would have been otherwise he brings all that experience that richness that empathy to the table and it is in some ways i see it as kind of his secret power and when i think about the larger idea of failure look sometimes things just don't work out but his approach to creating these synergies i think is a really healthy and appropriate way to think about these missteps when they happen If you'd like to reach out to Howard, check out his website, hswarshaw.com, or pick up his book, Once Upon Atari. Fail Hard is sponsored by Adobe. Everything associated with this show is enabled by the Creative Cloud, and we couldn't be more grateful for their support. Thank you, Adobe we're releasing new episodes of Fail Hard every Tuesday. So go ahead and hit the subscribe button to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Also, check out our TV show, America by Design. To find out when and where it's playing in your region, go to americabydesigntv.com. There you'll find scheduling information as well as extended episodes and behind-the-scenes footage. Lastly, if you have any questions or thoughts about the show, reach out to me on Instagram, willhall.co. You can slide in my DMs and shoot me a note and I'll be sure to reply. We'll see you next week.